to a line of Angela's ashes, you glamorous Tanyas. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I'm recording this podcast in a hotel room over in Oslo in Norway. And I'm actually marvelling. I'm marvelling at the sound quality. I've got a shitty microphone worth about 60 quid that I travel with. And the room itself is actually quite echoey. So I'm very surprised at the lovely warm sound that I'm getting out of this mic in this room. It's certainly not warm in Oslo. It's minus 12 degrees in Oslo. It's a type of cold that penetrates your bones. But luckily, I am dressed appropriately, head to toe, in outdoor gear. Double Gore-Tex pants that trap a layer of warm air like the plumage of a sparrow. And I have waterproof snow-proof, steel-toed hiking boots. So I'm perfectly equipped for wandering Oslo in minus 12 degrees. I'm a 21st century divorced Viking. I was really looking forward to going to the Viking Ship Museum here in Oslo, but it's fucking closed. It's closed until 2026 while they do renovations. And I'm sickened because they've got a perfectly preserved 9th century Viking ship that's 78 feet long the only one of its kind in the world and I was really looking forward to seeing this but the museum is closed but the wonder of life is that I have a choice about how I react to that sense of disappointment I could choose to ruminate on that feeling of disappointment and tell myself well the trip to Oslo is pointless now I really wanted to see that Viking museum and now I can't This type of stuff always happens to me. What's the point? I'm just going to stay in my hotel room. Or I could acknowledge the feeling of disappointment. Accept that disappointing things are an unavoidable facet of life. Sometimes things don't go as you planned. Because events are outside of my control. Let's be curious. Let's see what else I can do in Oslo. I'm going to wander around and have a little adventure. I know that might sound very silly there. But sometimes a minor disappointment can really colour the mood of our day, of the rest of our day. If I don't have emotional awareness, I can end up reverting to a kind of childhood position whereby something disappointing happens and my response is to kind of sulk a little bit, to sulk a little bit. And that then can trigger a type of all or nothing thinking. The Viking Museum is closed. I was really looking forward to it. Now the trip is pointless. Now I can't have any fun. What's the point? This is so unfair. It can be so easy to slip into that way of thinking. And when I noticed that coming up in me, I challenged it immediately. I challenged it immediately and says, I've no evidence whatsoever that my trip to Oslo is now going to be shit because the Viking Museum is closed. I've no evidence. I'm feeling disappointment. This isn't nice. But I'm treating this feeling as a fact. Feeling disappointed because the museum is closed. That's a fact. But allowing that feeling of disappointment to confirm that the rest of the trip is pointless. That's not a fact at all. So as soon as this podcast is finished. I'm going out into Oslo and I'm having fun. And I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to approach the city with curiosity and some nice music. And to illustrate the importance of acknowledging an emotion like that and challenging it. After finding out that the Viking Museum was closed 
and then challenging that feeling and going, fuck it, I'm going to have crack anyway. I went in to have my shower, but while I was in the shower, some water got into my ear. Now, I mean into my ear canal. Some water got trapped in my ear canal that I couldn't get out and then I couldn't hear properly in my right ear. It was very unpleasant. You know the feeling, it happens every so often. It's one of the disappointments of life. When you use a shower or go into a swimming pool, sometimes you get water trapped in your ear and you can't get it out and it's not very nice. So this was the second disappointing thing that happened in my day. Now here's the thing, and anyone who flies a lot as part of their job will tell you this. Tomorrow, I'm flying to Berlin. You don't want to get on an airplane if there's a bit of fluid caught in your ear. If you have like fluid caught in your ear from the shower or the swimming pool, or if you have a cold even, when you get on a fucking plane and you take off or land, that pressure can actually draw the fluid deep into your ear and then it becomes a problem that can last a couple of weeks or a month. Now I'm not joking, I got onto a plane 10 years ago with a head cold and when that plane took off my left ear got clogged with mucus for months and I couldn't hear properly and I got multiple ear infections. It really wasn't pleasant. So this morning when I got that water in my ear in the shower I immediately kind of panicked a little bit. I went, fuck, I've water stuck in my ear. It won't come out. I'm going on a plane tomorrow. Fuck. I know from experience, when I get on that plane tomorrow with the water trapped in my ear, the plane is going to make it way worse and this could become a problem for months. This is really disappointing. So what did I do? I responded to the situation calmly, went online, figured out... How do I get water out of my ear that's just gone in? Found a YouTube video. I lay my head on its side and use the palm of my hand to create a suction motion against my earlobe and that sucked all the water out and the problem was solved before it got worse. Now why is this relevant? Why am I even talking about this? I'll tell you why. Because I had mindfully taken ownership of my feeling of disappointment earlier It meant that I was in the emotionally regulated position to respond to the water in my ear in a solution-focused way. You see, if my mood was, the Viking Museum is closed, this is awful, this is terrible, my day is fucked. If that was my mood and I'm ruminating on themes of unfairness, when the water then got trapped in my ear, I would have used that as confirmation for that theme of unfairness. I'd have just said, There you go, water's stuck in your ear, now you're fucked and you're going to get on that plane tomorrow and you're going to get an ear infection. I would have engaged in what's called emotional reasoning. I'd have been ruminating and feeling that everything was unfair and then scanning for anything that confirms that feeling of unfairness and not challenge it. And I certainly wouldn't have calmly said, there's water in my ear, how disappointing, let's find a solution. And now I've found a solution, I don't have any water in my ear, I've got my lovely winter clothes and I can't wait to go out into Oslo and have some fun. And you know what? I might get hit by a car. Because life is chaos and bad things happen. And I've no control over that. I've no control over what happens to me. But I have full control over how I react to what happens to me. 
And there's a wonderful freedom. There's a wonderful freedom in that, in acknowledging that. Acknowledging that I can't create certainty. Anxiety is when I try to create certainty. I can't create certainty. Life is uncertainty. But I am certain that I can respond to uncertainty when it presents itself. That's mindfulness. Why the fuck is he talking about Viking museums and water in his ear? Is this him being autistic again? No, it's just mindfulness. This is mindfulness. To be mindfully aware of my emotions throughout the day. To really be mindfully aware of my emotions. And to catch myself and to challenge myself when my emotions are reactive rather than proactive. And that's mindfulness. That's a, that's mindful practice. And when I'm not being mindful of those tiny little things like that, when I'm not being mindful, unnecessary suffering just spirals and grows like a ball that's rolling down a hill and gathering dirt until it becomes massive. Mindfulness for me is catching and noticing the little things early. And I mean literally early because when you wake up first thing in the morning, that's the best opportunity. That's the best opportunity to notice how I'm feeling. Are my feelings a realistic appraisal of what's actually happening right now? Or are they reactive emotions? Are they reactive emotions that are somehow coloured by unhelpful shit I learned growing up? And for me, what I mean by that is unfairness for me specifically. The feeling of unfairness. Things don't go right. I'm always fucking up. That's a trigger for me because if you grow up neurodivergent in in the school system, things can be a little bit unfair sometimes because you're struggling within a system that isn't designed for you. For you, maybe your parents didn't get along so well when you were a kid, so the feeling of abandonment might be a trigger for you, or conflict might be a trigger for you. So mindfulness is about being aware of our own personal stories and being aware that we might have written scripts for ourselves based on these stories that are quite unhelpful and we don't have to follow that script. We can write a new story because we're adults. So for this week's podcast, I've got a wonderful conversation with a historian by the name of Carl Chin from Birmingham. I first met Carl over the summer when I was doing a podcast in Birmingham and Carl was my guest. But we only got to speak on stage for about 20, 30 minutes. But we immediately hit it off. We sat down and had a pint. And we spoke for about 8 hours solid. About fucking everything and anything to do with history. Carl was one of the most knowledgeable and passionate people I've ever fucking met. He's a professor of history. But there's no academic sense of exclusion from him at the end of the day he's just a person who's deeply curious and passionate and knowledgeable and driven by generosity driven by generosity the generosity of sharing his fucking knowledge with whoever wants to listen so i brought carl back on the podcast when i was in coventry a few months back for a proper chat And what I wanted to speak about really was, like, Carl's area tends to be 
like what he most gets brought onto the media to speak about is the real history of the Peaky Blinders. The real history of the Peaky Blinders, the working class gangs of Birmingham. But what I wanted to speak to Carl about, because I know very little about it, is the history of the English working class. I know from comments from my own listeners, because I've quite a large listenership in England, I know from comments from my own listeners that for English people to show interest or to speak about their history, it can make them a bit queasy and unsure because first off, a huge amount of English history is the history of colonization, the history of the empire. And the other thing is a fear that it can come off as nationalistic and adjacent to fascism. And Carl Chin is wonderful because he speaks about English history with this in his awareness. He speaks about it from a position of inclusivity and understanding and community with all people living in England. He's really quite fantastic. Before I get into the podcast, please check out any of Carl's books. His name is spelled C-H-I-N-N. Check out, Carl Chin has published a ton of fucking history books. So if you like this podcast, go out and buy one of them. I was chatting to Carl about possibly him getting his own podcast together. When he does that, I'll definitely let everybody know I might have him back on again. And I don't do a huge amount of talking myself in this chat because... Carl is too fascinating. He's too fascinating. I just sat back and listened. And we spoke about a lot of stuff. From the history of the English working class, to the Anglo-Saxons, to the Peaky Blinders. We chat about loads. So here's my conversation with Professor Carl Chin. And before I continue, two things. First off, for those of you who aren't from fucking Ireland or England, Scotland, Wales, Carl's accent is, it's a Birmingham accent which is a wonderfully lyrical accent. It's the accent you hear in Peaky Blinders. And then the second thing is, early on in this podcast, I mention an English tree that was cut down, and I can't think of the name of it. It was the Sycamore Gap tree. That's a bit dodgy, isn't it? It's a little bit of a, a, a dodgy Coventry chair. Um, can you move the mic a little bit close there, Carl? And if, if you, How's that? Can you hear Carl there? Are you all right? Okay. Um, it's hard to know what to chat to you about because literally everything I talk to you about, you seem to know about it. <laughs> um, if I had one kind of intention for tonight and the thing I really want to chat to you about is... So in Ireland, we learn everything about why Britain is bad. And in England you don't learn anything about how Britain is bad, you know what I mean? But we also don't learn anything about how Britain is good. And something I'd love to know more about, because when I'm always talking about the Brits, I make it clear to my audience that who I'm speaking about is the elite Mm -hmm. and not the normal, regular working people of, 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 of England or Scotland or Wales or whatever. And like... I want to know about the, the English working class. I want to know about that history. I want to know about... And the other thing too, and, and it, it, it's, I can say it as an Irish person, right? Because if you say it, it's weird for you. But there's so many English people and they're like, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm afraid to be even proud of Englishness because 
of how dodgy that territory is. Now, me as an Irish person, I've no problem being proud to be Irish. I'm well able to explore my culture, my history, and it's encouraged and prideful and compassionate and on an international scale as well with solidarity with Palestine and that. But I do feel sorry for poor old English people sometimes. I feel sorry for... I'll tell you what did it for me recently. Do you not remember that tree that got knocked down? Yeah, the one that got down up in the north. Yeah, and I saw how upset people were online and I felt sorry that it's like, that's something that you can hold on to and that you love and that there's tradition and no one's going to say, are you Tommy Robinson's best pal? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, the similar thing happened in the black country recently. I'm sure many people in the room heard about it, the destruction of the Crooked House pub. Of the what? It's a, a tremendous building. It was built originally as a farmhouse in the middle of the 1700s, just on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. And it was transformed eventually into a pub. It was officially called the Glen Arms, after the, the wealthy family that owned the land nearby. But it was right on the edge of the Earl of Dudley's land. And there's collieries all around. Bagridge Colliery was a big one nearby. What's a colliery? A, a mine. Okay. A coal mine. A coal mine. You call it that? Yeah, colliery. Wow. <laughs> I'd never heard of that. Question for you. Where was the only mine, coal mine in Ireland? Tipperary? No. Nope. Where? Leitrim. Arigna. Really? Yeah. We didn't have much coal in Ireland, did we? Not much coal at all. That's why you used the peat instead. Okay. I don't know which is better. They're both bad. <laughs> so the Crooked House was called the Crooked House because of all the work underneath, all the tunnels that were cut. It went on a slope, but it was the strange. Has anybody ever been in the Crooked House? It was, it was, it was strange, wasn't it? You go in there wow. and you could, you could put a coin one way on the slope and it'd go up instead of going down. It was like defying gravity, wasn't it? Wow. And... Somebody bought it. It was a, a symbol of black country pride, which is the region just to the west of Birmingham, Dudley, what is called Samwell, West Bromwich, Wednesbury, mm -hmm. places like that, Warsaw, Wolverhampton, Bilston. And I've got to be careful what I say here because it's still a legal case, but somebody bought it and lo and behold, this ancient building that was symbolised a shift from agriculture to industry and working people's pride ended up being burnt down. Now they're bulldozed. Oh God, okay. So there's still an investigation going on, but what- and people are raising their eyebrows. People got really angry about it. There's a huge group of the Was friends. it listed or anything or protected? No, it was about to be listed. Okay. And this is one of the problems I think we're faced with in this country is that they don't now normally do that, knock buildings down straight away. What they do to an old building that could have a place in the modern world they let it deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And once it's deteriorated enough, oh, it's health and safety. We have to knock it down. And we're losing too much value. So to come back to the point that you made, one of the books I'd like to write in the future, if I ever get chance, is about working class heroes. Mm -hmm. Because what's happened is, I think, over the last 30, 40 years, the idea of the working class has been pushed out. Mm -hmm. You don't hear politicians, you hear phrases like working people but you don't hear anybody say working class anymore. And lots of young people, in my opinion, and it's based on my work in lots of schools in working class neighborhoods, don't recognize that 
What's a poor white kid, a poor black kid, and a poor Asian kid got in common? Poor. They're all poor. So I'm not discounting the importance of ethnicity and gender and all those nationality, but I think we've got to look at not only what makes us different, which is really important in a region like ours, diversity is important, but also what we have in common, unity. And so I give a talk in Birmingham, I go to lots of schools, and I call it Many People's One Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Because if we can't come together and work together, how can we go forward? So let me give you a couple of examples of working class heroes. There was a, a guy from the Chartist movement. I don't know if you, you mm -hmm. right. So the Chartist movement was the greatest working class movement ever. In 1829, Thomas Atwood formed the Birmingham Political Union to bring together the middle and working classes to fight for democracy. And huge meetings were held across. When you say democracy there, do you mean political democracy? Yeah. Is it, okay. Yeah, so at that time, basically, we were dominated by the, the lords and the okay. the Burgers. Wow, in 1820? 30. So it so, led... So are you saying there that these people didn't have, a, a, like, a vote? Th there, was, there was a place called Old, Old Sarum, and it was just a hill. It had, in the Middle Ages, been a little settlement. And the owner of that hill sent an MP to Parliament. There's a place called East Dulwich, which was off the coast and, of East so Anglia. This, this hill owner, and, and did he represent then who, who? Yeah, he decided who would represent But him. who were these people? Is he their lord, or does he own a factory? It, it, or? Yeah, no, this was in the countryside, so he'd be the lord of the manor. There was a, is he posh? Like, yeah. is he royal? No, they wouldn't be royal. Okay. They'd be landed... Uh, you'd either have the landed elite, which would be like the... the the great lords and mm -hmm. ladies, and then you have the gentry, which are the knights of the shires. Mm -hmm. There's a place called East Dulwich, which was sunk under the North Sea. The lord who owned the land, the coast opposite East Dulwich, appointed a, an MP to Parliament. Mm -hmm. So those you were called rotten boroughs, then there were pocket boroughs where there were only a few electors. There was one or two places like Nottingham, Coventry, where a few freemen had the vote, but basically the and only... what's a freeman? So a freeman would be, if you belonged to an old-fashioned guild, in Coventry it would have been the, like the silk weavers, Coventry Blue, the, the, the beautiful and, collar. And a guild is a bit like a, a union, it's... Yeah, it would have been of really highly skilled men. And okay. again, it's very much male. Mm -hmm. So there was this great campaign uh, that was really... Thomas Atwood, who was from Hales Owen, went to school in Wolverhampton. He was a pity of a West Midlands man. He started the Birmingham Political Union. A quarter of a million people met in Birmingham on May the 8th in 1832 to call for peace, law and order and the extension of the vote. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the government was so concerned over this that eventually the king had to threaten the House of Lords. He would, he would create loads more lords so that the bill for the Reform Act would go through. The Reform Act went through and what, in effect, happened was the middle class had said to the working class, back us up, let us get the vote first. And once we're in Parliament, we'll get the vote for you. So what happened? They closed the door. Mm -hmm. They got sucked in to the political nation. Mm -hmm. So then what happened was, in 1838, the Chartist movement, six points to the Charter, universal male suffrage. Do you know what, ladies? What they wanted originally, they wanted universal suffrage. But it was so radical to think that working class men could have the vote, they dropped the idea 
of women having the vote, but there were there was lots of female chartists. So they took the name from the charter, universal male suffrage, payments of MPs. Now, today we look at that and think, why should we have payments of MPs? If you're a working class person and you want to go to Parliament, how are you going to do that if you're not going to get paid? Mm -hmm. It's all right for the rich. They still get their money. So that was really and getting important. getting there back then was probably way more expensive. Very, you very stay much. In the ta tavern, you had a horse, you know. Correct. All that. They wanted equal electoral districts, regular par parliaments. Most of the things that we would say today were part of British democracy, the Chartists fought for. So they had huge Was meetings. there ever any violence to put them down? Yeah, there was. There was uh, uh, lots of violence used. Two of the greatest leaders of the uh, Chartist movement were Irish. It does sound like quite Irish activity. <laughs> <laughs> there was a man called Brontir O'Brien. And physical... Uh, Brontir? Brontir O'Brien. I'm sorry, Brontir O'Brien. Wow. That, is that a nickname? I'm no, that was his real name. Wow. Okay. I thought you were going to tell me what it meant. No, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> and there was another man called Fergus O'Connor. Okay. There was a guy who was originally, we think, from the West Indies called William Coffey. Mm -hmm. So this was a movement that wasn't about just the English working class. It was all the working class that were living in England. It, it, it dropped off, uh, there was nearly, there was a lot, there were more, there were more army soldiers in the north of England than had been sent to India mm -hmm. because they were so worried about what was mm -hmm. happening. There were lots of meetings, eventually the Chartist movement slowly disintegrated. Civil war is the fear there, obviously, is it, or, or just a, a, a peasant up, uprising? Well, it wasn't even so much as what now, because the, Thomas Hardy was the great writer mm -hmm. of the last of what we could call the English peasantry. And when I'm using the term peasantry, I don't mean it in a derogatory sense. I want to say it in the real sense, which means landed people, mm -hmm. workers of the land. Is that what it means? Yes, what it really means. Okay. Paisano would be the Spanish equivalent. Mm -hmm. Paisan in, oh. in, in France. So yeah. a lot of these words, you know, were, go across Europe. So Thomas Hardy in the Mary Casterbridge, the Trumpet Major and other novels, he really captured the, the end of the English peasantry. That's why his books are so inspiring and, and so important. The, the end there, like, does that mean they ended up working in factories? Lots of them ended up working in factories, but lots were pushed off the land because just like what happened in the Highland Clearances when the mm -hmm. lairds got rid of the, the crofters because they wanted to have sheep instead of people, wow. people are being pushed off the land. So what we see with the so charts... Economic reasons, get off the land yeah. because we want the resources yeah. there of putting yeah. sheep or cattle. Yeah. And this had started at, at the end of Queen Elizabeth I's reign with the enclosures. So the common land was, com was continually being enclosed. And the people... What does that mean? Because someone asked me to ask you that. Right, so the common land is you would have your three fields in the three field system, right? And there would be strips. Mm -hmm. And different, you know, depending on how much many strips you owned, you, you would farm those strips. You'd have one big field, a huge field that was fallow, and the next year the other field would be fallow. But you'd also have common land. And this was really important for the rural poor because they might be able to raise a pig on that common land. Common is everybody. Everybody's in common. How do people not fight over that? They, they try to, but what you, what you need to understand is the power was with the gentry. So this is not the, often it's not the great lords 
the dukes and that. It's the knights, it's the lords of the mm. manors. It is the great lords as well, but the ones in the, at the forefront would be the, the gentry, and so they get an enclosure act passed. Is there a bit of police in there? Like if, Not so if much two police. two peasants it, are fighting over, yeah, my pig wants that, and your pig can yeah. go fuck itself. <laughs> Who comes in and says, hold on, lads, the army. E- equal stuff for the pigs here? Yeah, they, they would, if, they, if it got too bad, there would be the militia. So the militia, basically, in those days, it would be equivalent to what we now call the territorials, but where the territorial is, should be classless, the militia was very much gentry mm-hmm. and the, those attached to the gentry that relied upon them. Mm-hmm. And they were often cavalry. So, for example, have you seen uh, Ken Loach's film, Peterloo? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I recommend it to anybody that hasn't seen it because this was 1819 after the Napoleonic Wars. Again, before the Chartist movement, there was this great outpouring of, de- of, of, of desire for democracy. And uh, if you ever want to read a first-hand account, one of the be- well, probably the best one is by a man called Samuel Bamford, who wrote about it. And it was set in Manchester, and they gathered for reform. A huge meeting at St Peter's Fields in, in Manchester. And the militia came and attacked them on horseback with cutlasses. And there was a panic. Some were killed by the cutlasses. Others were trampled to death, women and children. Mm. In its sad generation after generation of violence across the world mm-hmm. with women and children and men suffering. Mm-hmm. So what they did, they called it Peterloo because it was satirical four years before it had been the Battle of Waterloo, yeah. this was a massacre of the English working class. Mm-hmm. So you've got to understand that the, the class system was, they had the polit- politics, they had military, mm-hmm. they had the law. Mm-hmm. Now, what you'll find is, in my own research, looking at the real Peaky Blinders of the 19th century, men were being sent down for two and three months for viciously beating people, buckled belts, loaded coshies with metal, and yet somebody that uttered false coins, made false coins, would be sent down for five years. Mm-hmm. And there's the distinction that was there in English law, sadly, was property was more important mm-hmm. than the poor who were suffering from the gangs. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the English working class, it's a battle that's been going on for centuries. Mm-hmm. And it's a battle that unfortunately, over the last generation has declined in terms of the attention it receives. Because I'm guessing, right, just again, why would they teach that in schools here? Like in the same way that if you go to school here, you're not going to learn about, well, here's a bunch of shit we did to the Irish. Here's a bunch (laughs) of shit we did to to the Indians. Like, similarly it doesn't benefit the powers that be to go, here's a bunch of shit we did to your grandfather. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? The, the difficulty as well is, I'm, I'm, funny enough, coming like How in, do you feel, how, is this new, new, new information that you're hearing here? One man over there quite proudly says no. <laughs> but in general, is this shit taught in school here? No. Not some schools, but not many. There are occasional schools, as a, I think a gentleman up there shouted, was that, are you a teacher, sir? Yeah, yeah so you teach at your school? No, that's oh, the point. It's fair play to you. Yeah, yeah. So it's really hard, to, it's very hard to teach these subjects because the national curriculum is a straitjacket. 
that is squeezing the life out of creativity in schools. Mm -hmm. And youngsters have to learn at the age of six, seven, and eight about Romans. Well, let's start with Nan and Grandad. <laughs> We're ancient history, aren't we? Start with Nan and Grandad, and then you can take them back as far as you want then, because they realise people are people throughout mm -hmm. history. And that's the fun of fucking history. That's of what course I, it is. Hist when people, if I get asked, why do you love history so much? I say, it feels like time-travelling empathy. Yeah, it, it is because what we need to understand, one of the things I think we need to, again, tie into what we've just been talking about, we need to know about more about who we are and our own localities so that we can reach out to the world. Why are people here in Birmingham and Coventry and places, Manchester and everywhere else, from the Caribbean, from Ireland? It's because we went out there mm -hmm. and people have come in. So by understanding our local history and finding out why people live here, we can reach out to the globe. So I don't see, again, I don't see local history as something insular. Mm -hmm. It's about opening up our eyes, finding out why, what is a place name? Why is it called such? You see, it just, it, it, it's, it's, it's so interesting hearing this, because like, so from the Irish perspective, right? So we're very much about our history, right? But the general vibe in Ireland, and you'll see this at the moment with, like the entire world is looking now and going, Fucking hell, why are the Irish so vocal about Palestine? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Even our politicians in Ireland who are Tories, effectively, are bizarrely like, it's, oh my God, I'm agreeing with them about fucking... It's strange, <laughs> like, our Tory politicians are like... Well, you've got two parties there are, haven't you? Finn Gael and Fianna Foyle. Two cheeks of the same fucking arse. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the, it's interesting there that the politicians that are, have policies that are, have loads of homeless people yeah, and heartless yeah, policies... Yeah. They're actually going, no, 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 there's human rights abuses and this needs to be stopped. Now, not as much as they should, no. because they were going to expel the ambassador today and it didn't happen. So people were disappointed with that. But the thing is with Ireland, how we often feel about our history is, oh God, that's a lot of pain there for a long time. Yeah. What's the point at that if we can't use that for empathy? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than going um, into, into bitterness or sadness, you go, well, look, it, we're, we're, we're doing okay now. And that was a horrible thing that happened to our ancestors. But this gives us a real unique... We're, we're white people who were fucking colonised. So we were colonised as white people and we have a voice then as white people with that privilege to go stop it yeah. over there. And that's what we try and do. I'll tell you a great example of that in Ireland. Have you been to Strokestown? I know, but I know about it. In Roscommon. Anybody from Roscommon who got family from Roscommon? Roscommon... It's a, a, a small county just to the west of the Shannon. Mm -hmm. And you cross over the Shannon at Athlone, and the West Meath part of Athlone is quite big and bustling. Mm -hmm. As soon as you hit the Roscommon part, it's small and quiet, isn't it? And people tend to just drive through Roscommon to get to, well, there's Westport in Galway, and there's Galway City. But Roscommon is a really historical place. The oldest family in Europe live there. Wow. The O'Connors of Roscommon. They are the descendants of the last High Kings, Phelim O'Connor and the others of Ireland. The O'Connors... You so older than, like, fucking right. so our British royalty our, older. Our king can take his ancestry back to Niall of the Nine Hostages of Ulster. Mm -hmm. They can go back just before that. Wow. Father to son. And then Strokestown has got this huge square 
but it's also got a famine museum, mm -hmm. which was one of the most upsetting things I'd been to in my life. Uh, but coming back to the point you made, what, what they did in the museum, because the, the, the people around there, the Mahons were the owners, the landowners. They had been Catholic, but they were adventurers mm -hmm. and they joined in with the Anglo-Irish Protestant ascendancy. And they had a lot of land and they sent a lot of people on the coffin ships mm -hmm. from Strokestown. And Dennis Mahon got shot mm -hmm. by one of his tenants. But in the museum, it wasn't just about the Irish who'd suffered, it was about Ethiopia. It was about contemporary famines, mm -hmm. which are, were happening. I'm going back now 20, 25 years since yeah. I was there. But it, it was a, a moving and disturbing, but an important experience. And that's the shit, Carl, that we're scared of losing. Yeah. So, like, Sinead O'Connor, she was that for us. Yeah, yeah. Fucking Sinead. Ripping up the post at uh, the Pope's picture, even something as simple as going onto the Grammys and Public Enemy, who were a rap act in yeah, the nineties, yeah. they, they weren't, they didn't have an award for them or something. It was racism, and Sinead went up and, and sang and shaved Public Enemy into the side of her head. Sinead in nineteen eighty seven, when again the most important music in the world was African American hip hop, yeah. it was not being taken seriously by record companies. So Sinead, um, as a white artist, yeah. who was one of the big, like Britney Spears at the time, that level of big, yeah, yeah, she demanded that no, 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 I'm going to have a female rapper on my album, and her name is going to be there beside mine. And she nearly fucked up her career over it. But she's yeah. like, I don't fucking care. I'm Irish. And similarly. Bernadette Devlin, you know Bernadette yeah, Devlin. Yeah. Bernadette Devlin from Derry in, in the north of Ireland, who I had <clears> on, on this podcast, she was invited to New York by the Irish Americans. Yeah. And the Irish Americans were going, oh, isn't it terrible what's happening over in Ireland with the British? And then Bernadette says, you're doing that here, yeah. the black people. And she took the key to New York City and instead of accepting it, went up to Harlem and gave it to the fucking Black Panthers. Yeah. And the Irish Americans fucking hate her. And she yeah. says, I don't give a fuck because I know what my roots are. And we're very proud of that and we don't want to lose it. But the sad thing is as well, what you've hit on there, and I've got met lots of Irish Americans. A lot of them are racist. I know, yeah. And that's sad is that people who have faced racism, their descendants, then mm -hmm. become racist. Mm -hmm. And they got their, there's a brilliant book called How the Irish Became White. Yeah. By Noel Ignatia was his name. And he basically uses history to show that when the Irish arrived in the 1840s in New York, they wouldn't have been considered white in the way that today, like Romany people, yeah. you know what I mean? They yeah. wouldn't be considered white, even though it's, it's not necessarily about skin culture, color, it's about a structure. And Irish people became the white Irish Americans they are today through acts of brutality against their African-American neighbors. Yeah. They, well, they massacred them in New York during yeah, the Civil the War. Yeah, but you see that around the world. Like, man, I got into a taxi in Limerick and my driver was, he was a dude from Nigeria who'd been yeah. in Ireland a while. And as soon as I got into the taxi, the first thing he wanted to do was complain about Ukrainians. <laughs> but it made me feel sad. I know. Because that was his way of assimilating. Yeah. And you see that the world over. Who's coming in behind us? Fucking great. That makes me a little bit more yeah. in the system now. And there's a sadness to it, you know? But, but that reaction is not conscious with the most people. No. It's an unconscious thing that happens. Mm -hmm. 
So what he needs to be brought out more into the open, and we're not talking about these things in the open. No, no. Well, we are tonight, but a lot of people don't talk about them. And you don't hear politicians talking about them. Mm -hmm. except, except insulting people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to see what our interval is now. Another 10 minutes. I'm trying to figure out what question can I ask you, Carl, that will last 10 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> can I tell you why it's interesting for me to come here this evening? Go on, please. Well, I was on the dole in 1986. Mm -hmm. I, I was just finishing off my doctoral thesis. And uh, th uh, there was a... I think he's still here, Professor James Hinton, uh, a historian. And he was going on study leave, and my tutor was a wonderful uh, tutor called Dorothy Thompson. She was, uh, she'd written a lot about Chartist women, and her husband, Edward Thompson, wrote The Making of the English Working Class, which was the first book that really started. I have that book, I haven't read it's it. It's brilliant. Okay. You've got to read it. It's very deep, deep old. It's very much based on West Yorkshire, and adult men who were skilled or semi-skilled, but it, it, was the, oh, it was the gate opening to mm -hmm. social history. And he, he contacted, James Hinton contacted Dorothy Thompson and said to her, could you recommend somebody? And this was my first job here, part-time. I was on the dole and they allowed me, I think I picked up 25 pound uh, for a session and they let me keep a fiver of it. <laughs> the dole office did. Uh, but she was a wonderful influence on me because coming from a working class background, I didn't grow up poor, I grew up well off. Dad was a bookie. <laughs> but my mum and dad were very working class culturally. So mum was Aston, dad was Sparkbrook. I worked in the betting shops from when I was a kid. I grew up culturally working class and proud to be from there and to know how fortunate I was to have an education. Mm -hmm. My nan left school virtually illegally at 12 to mind the babbies. Mm -hmm. She was the oldest daughter of 12. Um, my dad left school at 13, our mum, 15, went to work in a factory, so I was very lucky. And when I started university, I was the first one of the families who had gone past 16, at, well, 16 at school. And I was doing my doctorate, I was married to Kay, my Dublin wife, and we got two babbies. And I used to go into the seminars, well, sorry, one-to-one -one classes with, with Mrs. Thompson. And after about three months, they said to me, Carl, would you call me? Mrs. Thompson, I was 26 at the age, two kids, married. She said, will you call me Dorothy from now on? I said, of course I will, Mrs. Thompson. Because <laughs> that's how I'd been brought up. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to overcome that. And I still, I think I've still got that. Is, and is that a class thing? Yeah. That's looking up. Yeah, and not only a class thing, it is a class thing, not necessarily looking up, but not being confident in who we are. I'm sure there's many of you in here feel the same as me, you know, that... The, 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 not having a chance to speak to middle-class people when you're growing up. Yeah, and not so much even that, because you didn't see them, but it's the public school kids. I saw it, I saw it at university when I was teaching. The youngsters from private and public schools were so confident compared to the kids from comprehensives and, and what would have been... And that means small seeing an opportunity, taking yeah, an opportunity, yeah, yeah. no matter well, how small that and is. And so you still have that feeling, though, no matter, I'm 67, I've got, you know, I've done all right, but I still feel that, should I have been there? Shouldn't I have done something? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That you're not, you still haven't got that self-confidence. You come over a self-confidence, it's something you have to develop, but there's still that inside that, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And then 
that confidence then uh, can be called aggression. Yes, you're right, because I, rem <laughs> I remember when I first started, I, I wasn't going to go to university because I'd worked in the betting shops from when I was a kid and we'd had a couple of arm robberies and the old man was determined that I was going to go to. I'd had a gun at my head twice and I went to university and I wasn't going to go, so I put down Manchester, Sheffield, York and somewhere else and I didn't put down Birmingham. And anybody that now, my, my wife Kay's in here and she says, she's come from Dublin to live in Birmingham. She says, Carl and his family moving a one and a half mile radius from where his great, great, great grandfather lived in the 1820s. <laughs> so I, I ended up, I, I got accepted at Manchester and I got decent grades at my A levels and I won't go in. And um, on the Sunday as I should have gone, our nan turned up, finger missing from a power press accident. My uncle, George turned up, emphysema, could hardly walk, talk because he got problems from working in a scrapyard. My uncle, well, these are my great uncles, turned up. He was a polisher. He had to walk with, do you remember the old-fashioned nebulizers? Mm -hmm. He couldn't breathe because of the, pot, the, the, the metal was on his chest. And they laid into me, we've worked all our lives so somebody in the future could have a, oh an opportunity. God almighty. So I went up to Manchester on the Sunday and the villa was playing on the Wednesday. And I met me, I met me mates in, I met me mates, <laughs> I met me mates in the hole in the wall and our mum and dad after, they said, what are you doing back? I said, I can't stick it. I'd only been there three days. <laughs> and it was like, um, what was it? Tom Brown's school days. We had to wear a mortarboard and a cape in this hall of residence. What? Yeah. And we had to sit at these long tables and I, I, I can't handle How this. How long a day were you wearing a mortarboard? Uh, no, it was only just to get to dinner. Okay, yeah. What's the point of that? I don't know. <laughs> so, and I gave it another week and I come home. And um, luckily, the tutor got in touch with Birmingham University and arranged an interview and I got in there and that's the only reason I stayed, got into university. If not, I'd have been a bookie. <laughs> Do you think so, Doug? Like You've such a curiosity, Carl. <laughs> Would you have just have been a curious bookie? <laughs> well, I was always in... I, I love... People say to me, where do you get your love of history from? And it was mum and dad and nan and granddad and aunts and uncles meeting at our mum's on a Sunday and having a tot and then talking about the old end. And the old mm. end was still there when I was a kid. You know, nan was living in the back-to-back -back in Aston. Then she moved to a masonette in Neutral's which was knocked down <laughs> eventually. Um, our dad's family were better off because we were bookies, but we worked in the betting shops on the Lady Poor Road and there were people that used to come in and knew me great-grandparents. And so I was listening to stories about working-class life for me from when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the biggest thing that I could do would be, the worst, sorry, the worst thing I could ever do would be to betray them. Mm -hmm. And I hope I've never betrayed them because I'm the lucky one. I grew up better off and I had an education. And my duty is to give some of it back, not just to my mum and dad, but all to all those poor working class people who had nothing in their lives but fought and scratched every day to make a better world. And with God's grace, one day we will get that better world when we can smash that door of privilege and open it up for all our kids. Um. I'm gonna let you have a pint and a piss and we'll be, <laughs> we'll be back out in about 15 minutes.
wonderful opportunity here for a little ocarina pause. I'm gonna fix this microphone. A little ocarina pause here. That was some crack. That was some night I was having there in Coventry. The fucking audience loved it. But let's have a little ocarina pause now. I'm in my hotel room in Oslo, so... I don't have my ocarina, but I do have... A packet of Norwegian nuts. That I just pulled out of my mini fridge. So I'm gonna crinkle and shake these Norwegian nuts. And you're gonna hear an advert for something, alright? Mmm, crinkly Norwegian nuts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. called Polly Originalin which I assume means original originally po- original Polly nuts haven't eaten them yet they look like salted nuts they might get eaten later on there's an anthropomorphic nut man on the front of the packet he looks he looks a little bit like Mr. Tato who we have back in Ireland but much jollier with a, a strange fringe that was the Norwegian nut pause you'd have heard an advert for something there support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast this podcast is my full time job it's how I earn a living It's how I pay my bills. It's how I have the space and time to fail so that I can deliver the best possible podcast to you each week. So if you enjoy the work that I'm doing, this brings you mirth or merriment, distraction. If you enjoy this work that I'm doing, please consider paying me for that work. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee. Once a month, that's it. All right. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free, because the person who's paying is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. And also, it means that I'm I'm not beholden to advertisers. If an advertiser comes on this podcast, they do so on my terms. No advertiser can influence my content in any way. Or tell me what to speak about so that I get more clicks or views or whatever. Fuck that. Each week I make the podcast that I want to make. And this is all possible because of patrons. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Couple of gigs coming up. What I want to plug is the stuff that there's tickets left for. So on the 2nd of 
Wait a minute, now I can't read dates. 20th of the 2nd, no, no, no. On the 20th of February, 2024, I'm in Derry. I'm in Derry, right? At the Millennium Forum. Come along to that. It's for the Northern Ireland fucking science festival. That'll be good crack. Then what have I got after that? Killarney on the 23rd of February. Down in the Eineck in Killarney. Wonderful Killarney. And then I suppose the big one after that. My UK tour. I have a big giant tour of England, Scotland and Wales in April. That I really want you to come along to. Um, I'm doing fucking Newcastle, Glasgow. Glasgow sold out. Nottingham. Wales in the Millennium Centre in Cardiff. Brighton. Uh, fucking Cambridge. Bristol. I think Bristol sold out. And then my biggest ever gig. Biggest ever gig I've done. Which I cannot wait for. I'm in the Hammersmith Apollo in London. On the 1st of May. Come along to that. I can't wait for that tour. I'm going to have wonderful guests. And the audiences are just fantastic. The magnificent Kraken Tans, as I call my listeners over there, across the Irish Sea. Let's get back to this tremendous chat with Professor Carl Chin. Um, something we were chatting about backstage, and it's something that is bizarrely controversial here, is like, you were talking about how as a Brummy person, you have dialect, you have certain words that are specific yeah. to you, and these words are dying out, but they're not respected. And wh- I, I said to you, what do you mean? And one example you gave me was bab, like you called me bab because I'm younger. But then you said to me, you know, this is an Anglo-Saxon word. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Can you speak about that, the little dialects that you have? And- yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things, that, one of the problems we've got in this country is that if you get an education, you're supposed to speak in a certain way. And I faced a lot of prejudice in my career, at, even when at the BBC of a local radio station, being told I shouldn't speak as broad as I do. Why should I change? If I change my accents, I'll be betraying the people I come from. And I'll never betray them. And I'll give you another example of a word, and, and I wouldn't use this word to young women or women from outside Birmingham or the black country, but my, my nan was very proud to be our wench. <laughs> All right? Now, outsiders think this is an insulting term, the word wench. Not in Birmingham, the black country, not in the Potteries, not in the Forest of Dean. Our wench was your big sister. My nan was the oldest daughter of 12, had never had a child or down I was always minding the babbies because my great granddad was out of work in the 1920s, was traipsing the streets looking for work. My great granny had 12 babbies. I was looking, I was, I was taking in washing for the better off. Isn't it strange? The better off, the rich were always telling us our people were dirty, but who did they pay to clean their clothes? <laughs> our women. So I was taking in washing, I was going out charring. And of a night, I was working in a canteen at the Hercules Cycle Factory in Rocky Lane, Aston. So our nan had to mind the baby. She was very proud to be our wench. And the one day I was on the, on the radio on BBC WM, and I used, I said to an old brummy lady that had rung up, I says, how are you, my wench? 
and I got called into by the management on the Monday. You shouldn't be using that word. I said, now listen, I'm only using it in this specific circumstance with an older woman. And they were, we don't want you to use it again. The next week, the first person on was an old woman says, oh, Carl, I do love it when you call us old uns wenches. <laughs> you know, when you feel like saying, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> so there's words like that. So you, these, these are words that to me are, are they're my mum and dad, they're my nan and granddad, they're my forebears. Shake, they're words that Shakespeare would have used. Mm -hmm. And Shakespeare was one of us. Now, he, he was rap music. Yes, he was, he, was, he was the people's poet. He grew up not only in Stratford, but in North Warwickshire, in Polesworth. He spent a lot of time in Polesworth. And there's a lot of people from landed backgrounds, landed aristocracy, say, how come somebody from Stratford could write plays of this quality? It wasn't him, it was an earl, it was a lord, or whatever. Well, they're wrong, because he uses Warwickshire dialect words that anybody outside Warwick well, there is storytelling tradition as well that's what I'd like to know about because yeah, we know all about our storytelling tradition in Ireland and I want to know like even you know Guy Ritchie the director yeah Guy Ritchie said that he learned to make films by listening to working class storytelling yeah. tradition in, his, in a pub when he was a kid I think there's two things there there's, there's oral tradition mm -hmm. which he's passed on like the Shanaki yeah, from the West of Ireland, the storytellers, uh, the griots of Nigeria. Well, our our oral stories in Ireland can go back maybe yeah. 10, 15,000 years. And you even see the words, like there's even theories about, there's words and stories in Ireland that relate to floods. And some people reckon that it's people who saw the Ice Age. Yeah, yeah. And we still have that through words and stories. Because when you don't have fucking writing, you, and you can't write down a map, you keep these stories going so that you have mountains and lakes and whatever. And it's not just a lake, it's a lake with a magical fish. So you never fucking forget it, you know what I mean? I think what happened here was the industrialization and the mass movements of people to the towns and the cities, the industrial towns and cities, there was a disconnection then with the countryside. Mm -hmm. They brought in as much of the country with them as they could. They raised pigs and chickens in, in, in the poorest mm -hmm. areas and they, they brought their words with them. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is why those dialect words are so important. So there's a... There's, there's a Word, words from the countryside. Yes, words from the countryside wow. that come in. So my old man never said, go and chuck it in the dustbins. Chuck it in the miskins. Miskins is from the Anglo-Saxon word mixing for a rubbish heap. It was okay. brought in, it's a North Warwickshire word, brought into Birmingham, into the back-to-back -back courtyards. In... The Merry Wives of, uh, is it the Merry, no, it was um, one of his other plays and he's got this, this bloke that they're having at a Barney, I'm sit, sitting at the Royal Shakespeare Company because our Richard was doing drama and we went there and I was, I, was, I was, like you said, I was struggling a little bit and then suddenly these two blokes were having a Barney and one of them come out with a list of vile insults and he said, your breath is as foul as anything I've ever smelt from the soft. And I thought, I'm a sitting here amongst all these people. I bet I'm the only bloke that knows what the word soft means. It's the old word for drain in Birmingham. But it was a North Warwickshire word. So there's lots of these words. Sadly, they're dying out. They were brought in from the countryside. Blarting. 
You go over the wreck. That was the one I was saying earlier. You go and a big kid would eat you. And you come back to your mum. And I go, what's the matter with you? Big kids hit me, our mum. Go back and fight him. I can't fight him, mum. He's too big. Go back and fight him or I will give you something to blart about. And you were more scared of your mum belting you <laughs> than you was of the big kid. Blarting is the Middle English word from the North, North Warwickshire for the bleating of sheep. What does the bleating of a sheep sound like? A baby crying. And these words are poetical and they're historical and they connect us to our origins in the countryside, but they're dying out. I have a little question for you, and I need to know if this, again, it's something I heard. So I'm gonna try and take it back maybe about 800 years around then, right? Okay. So what I heard is that, okay, so the, the Normans took over here yeah. from the Anglo-Saxons. So the Normans were, spoke something that'd be similar-ish to French. And I heard that, about 800 years ago, 700 years ago, posh people spoke something Frenchish, and then poor people spoke Anglo-Saxon. And then, if I'm eating my dinner today, it's beef on the plate, which is buff, which is French, but it's a cow in the field, yep. which is Anglo-Saxon. Yep. It's poultry on the plate, which is poulet, which is French, and then it's chicken in the field, which is yep. Saxon. So what you have there, even on our own fucking dinner plates, you're looking after the animal, you're, you're caring for it, yeah. but I'm eating it. Yeah. Is, is that legit? Is that real? Yeah. No, no, the Normans spoke Norman French. We, it'd be very difficult, unless you knew Anglo-Saxon, to understand a full Anglo-Saxon, what an Anglo-Saxon was saying. Was it does, it, does it survive? Is there any... There is Anglo-Saxon yeah. writing, isn't there? there are... Well, there's Anglo-Saxon writings. What, Warwick, Fucking Beowulf! Warwick, where we are now, is, a, is an Anglo-Saxon name. It means okay. the, the, wit, the witch which is actually... The fucking witch? No, no, W-I-C. Okay. All right, which is from the Latin vicious, meaning a, a, a homestead where there is a weir, the River Avon. Now, what's really interesting here, which is where we reach out to the world again, there are very few old British, which will be now what we call Welsh words, Welsh place names in, in Warwickshire. They're overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon. Mm -hmm. But our river names are overwhelmingly pre-Celtic. They're from the people that were here before. So the river Avon is a bonner in Welsh. And the Ab is an Indo-European word for river. There are rivers in the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, that have the same root. Who knows the forest of Arden? Yeah, Henley and Arden where we used to get our ice creams from. Tamworth in Arden, Hampton Arden. Arden is the name of much of North Warwickshire. There's a place called the Ardennes on the borders of France and Belgium, isn't there? It's an upland wooded area. Wow. Arden, much of North Warwickshire, is an upland wooded area. Not a forested area, but heavily wooded mm -hmm. copses, little woods, farms around. That, again, is a pre-Celtic now, word. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think that we should start to do is start to look at our origins and understand who we are and how we have all come together. My own city, Birmingham, is named after an immigrant. Mm -hmm. Nobody teaches our kids this. ingas ham. The ham, the home. How do Scottish people say home? Haim. The home of the ingas, the people of Bayorma, Bayorma. He was a German. 
Wow. It was from a Germanic tribe, the Angles. If you look at the map of Jutland Peninsula, on the borders of Denmark and Schleswig-Holstein, there's a small peninsula called Angolan. The Angles gave their name to Angoland, England. They came across the North Sea at the, as the Roman Empire was collapsing. They settled in great numbers in the land of the East Angles. And some of them started to move westwards, the Middle Angles. And then Bayorma came with his people, amongst others, probably intermarried with the local Welsh. Some of them would have fled further west, the warriors were killed, but most of the people stayed there. So Birmingham, when I give talks in schools in Salt Lee and Allen Rock, which is third, fourth generation South Asian Brummies, I, I've got Anglo-Saxon DNA. I'm descended from an immigrant. It might be 1,500 years ago, mm -hmm. but I'm still descended from a, a newcomer. And that's what bonds us. That's what should bond us, understanding. And we need to know a lot more about who we are and where we come from to understand what we have in common. I heard that when the Anglo-Saxons, when they came to Britain and they were from the forest of Germany, that when they went to places like London, which was like big pillars yeah. built by the Romans, that they thought that London was built by giants, so they stayed away. Yeah, we, we can't ever prove that. And, and the idea that they all came from forests is, is a wrong one. Because or the idea maybe that they never saw Romans. Yeah, yeah, because where you see the Jutland Peninsula, it's flat. That's why the Angles had to leave. The sea was coming in. Go away. It wasn't wooded. And they, they were climate refugees. Yes. They, yes. <laughs> they were came over en masse. The Saxons didn't. So the Saxons tended to settle in the south. Essex, East Saxons. Mm -hmm. Wessex, West Saxons. But then others moved away from where the old Saxons lived by the Angles and moved to what is now Saxony in East Germany. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection there. But the Angles weren't from, from a wooded area. They were from a flatlands where the sea was encroaching and they moved to East Anglia. And their leader was a man called Itchel. Mm -hmm. And the kings of Mercia, who arose at the time of the... Anybody seen the, uh, seen the Staffordshire Ord? If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing collection of gold that was found in Hammerwich, just outside, just to the north of Birmingham. Hammerwich interested the settlements of the Hammers, Smiths, making things. And they found this amazing collection of broken gold, booty from uh, a battle. And it was at the time when Mercia, the Midlands Kingdom, was emerging. And it meant the marches, the borderland. Mm -hmm. And their, their leader was Pender, who was the, one of the, the last probably great pagan king. And the Angles were coming wet further west. But when you say pagan, who were the pagans then? Were they the, here before the Romans? No, we were the pagans. Do you know where the word pagan comes from? Go on. Latin, Pagani, country dwellers. Is that what it yeah. means? Because the country dwellers stayed loyal to the old gods longer than the Kivitas, the people in the cities. And do you know anything about uh, Anglo-Saxon religion? Yeah. Or, or beliefs? Yeah, so we've got two places, well, several places that are named after Anglo-Saxon beliefs. One is which is Coventry. Say <laughs> you thought I forgot Coven. your data. It's not Coven. Is it Coven and witches, no? Cofer's tree. Okay. Cofer's tree. So if you look at Anglo-Saxon mythology, there's a god called Baldur. Mm -hmm. And Baldur was hung on a tree like Jesus. Am I right? Go away, really? Yeah, yeah. 
and Baldor was hung by the tree. We think that Kofa, we don't know who he was, probably would have been somebody of importance, a religious figure, and there's a there would have been a holy tree here. In Birmingham, there's a place called Wheelie Castle. Now, don't get excited, there's no castle there. It's just the ruins of a manor house. Mm -hmm. But Wheelie, Lee, where you see the Lee in the West Midlands, it's a, it's a, a clearing in a woody landscape. And Weir, Weir would have been a heathen temple. Mm -hmm. Tysley, the clearing dedicated to the god Chu. Tuesday, Anglo-Saxon god of war. Then we have two places in the black country named after Weldon, the great god of the Anglo-Saxons, the equivalent of Odin of the Vikings, mm -hmm. right? Weldensburg, Wensbury, Weldensfield. Mm -hmm. Wensfield, the open space, the field of Weldon. So the, around the Birmingham Coventry area, black country, we stayed loyal. The people stayed loyal to the old gods a bit longer. That's why they're... Because it, it's, it's outsiders, people nearby that give you a place name. You don't name it yourself. Of course. Like Ireland didn't call itself Hibernia, the no. Romans did. That's yeah. right. They called it there. What I'd like to know, so, is... So, when I'm hearing you speaking about, like, old Anglo-Saxon beliefs and stuff like that, and it, to be honest, it's not really that long ago, you know? Now, in Ireland, in 500, mm -hmm. which is... That's Roman Britain times. Yeah, just after. Patrick came to Ireland, and when Patrick came from Wales to Ireland, he brought with him not just Christianity, but fucking Latin. Yeah. And that was hugely important for the Irish because in 500, we had thousands and thousands of years of our mythology, oral. Yeah. And then what the monks in Ireland did, because Rome didn't have much say over us, no. we had this Christianity and we're like, fuck it, let's mix it in with some of the old stories. <laughs> but because of that, we have written in Latin thousands yep. and thousand year old stories about Fionn McCool, about the salmon and knowledge, all of this stuff. And the feeder. And the feeder, yes. Cuchulain. And Cuchulain. Like, I mean, even that, it's like, who's Cuchulain? Why is he called Cuchulain? He is the hound of Colin. Who was Colin? Well, he used, to, this kid was called Satanta, yep. and he wanted to be trained by this warrior called Colin, but Colin had a dog. Coo is dog in Irish. Colin had a dog who was fierce. And when Satanta wanted to meet this master, the dog attacked him. So Satanta got a fucking hurley, a game that we still play, and he hit the hurley in the ball, and it lodged in the dog's throat. But the dog died, and now Satanta is there going, fuck, I'm after killing this cunt's dog, and I want him to train me. And then Colin comes out and says, you killed my fucking dog with your hurley, a prick. And then Satanta says, I'll be your dog. And then he became Cool Colin, the Hound of Colin. And so then there's the Buller Cooley. The bull yes, of course, the brown Buller Cooley. The, the so time. Ulster used to expand officially mm -hmm. into Monaghan, mm -hmm. Louth and uh, Cavan, as well as Donegal. And they had a great bull. Mm -hmm. And Queen Maeve she wanted, Connacht, wanted the bull, didn't she? Mm -hmm. so she went all her people over to nick the bull. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful trail from Carlingford, which mm -hmm. is on the east coast of Ireland, across through the Midlands, mm -hmm. to Queen Maeve's burial. Yeah, in Sligo. In Sligo. But if you look at that story, which is pre-writing, 
effectively you've got a fucking map. Yeah. It's a map. Yeah. And what this is, just to go on a tangent, it's what I fucking love about James Joyce. It's why you can rebuild Dublin from Ulysses. It's that tradition. It's the Irish tradition of you can't take it away from us. We will plot out a fucking area with interesting stories and it's a map if you want it to be. But we had the benefit, like I'm saying, of in the 500s, we got Latin from the Romans and then we were able to, our monks were like, I'm going to write about Christ, but I'm going to put Cuckholland beside it. That's what got us fucking invaded. My book is called Topographia Hibernica. And the reason it's called Topographia Hibernica is because when the Normans invaded us, after the Normans invaded ye in 1066, they were like, right, how do we properly colonize the Irish? The Pope at the time was Adrian, he was English. So what... The only English Pope ever. Yeah. What Gerald of Wales did, and the normal chronicler, he went and did topographia of Ireland, this big map of Ireland. And he, what he was really trying to prove was, look at what they've done to the Bible. Because we've had 500 years of writing, like the stories... And of Celtic Christianity. Yes, Celt- a new Christianity that, yes, Jesus is there. Like, even the fucking shamrock, which is our holy cross, you can trace that back 3,000 fucking years ago. You go to, not longer than that, you go to Newgrange, which mm. is older than the pyramids, and we have it in Ireland. You look at the designs on that, and, and it's a fucking shamrock. So, do you know what I mean? That's old, old, thousands of years old Christianity. But when Gerald was coming to Ireland going, let's colonize the fuckers, it's like, look at what they've done to the Bible. These are savages. And then he went and told the Pope Adrian. And it's like, go on, Christianize him, give him democracy. You know what I mean? But the other thing I heard is, the Irish, when Rome collapsed in Britain, and the Anglo-Saxons didn't really have writing as such, did they? No, they had runes. But the Irish reintroduced Latin and writing and gospels to the English. Yeah, the the, no, the, it's the, particularly in the north of England. So there was saints like St. Columba and others that came and, and down Scotland to... And as well, yeah. part of Ireland back then too, it was Dalriata. But the south then, they said, yeah, Dalriata would have been what is now County Antrim yeah. and Argyllshire. Mm-hmm. So the Scots, and again, that's a Latin name. And all it means is pirates. They weren't really pirates, they were mm-hmm. a people. Oh, the, the Scottish as well, doesn't that mean, like, Irish people that come over here? Didn't the Picts call them that? Yeah, the, the, the Scotti, it was a Latin word for pirate. Okay, yeah. Right? The Picts were mainly, very, they were the indigenous Celtic tribes mm-hmm. of, of what is now Scotland, Alba, before that. And very much their, their, their stronghold would be what we would now see, Aberdeenshire, mm-hmm. Fiveshire, areas like that. And it wasn't until Kenneth MacAlpine married the last daughter of the great Pictish kings and the succession went through the female line that the Scots from Dalreda brought the Gallic language and took over Pictland and started what becomes the Kingdom of Scotland. Um, something, can you hear Carl all right? Could you bring the mic a tiny bit closer for the last one? Just... Oh no, it's, like, it's a flipping hard job doing this. I mean, um, I'm having to negotiate. I'm thinking I'm going to come the right pearl or fall over in a minute. <laughs> We, we, we had this chat for fucking 11 hours while getting rat-arsed and bitten, <laughs> bitten by mosquitoes. In, uh, uh, tell them what happened to you afterwards. What happened to me afterwards? Were you back to the hotel? Were you back to the hotel? Man, I was shit-faced. I don't know what happened to me afterwards. <laughs> what, what did I do afterwards? You, were, you, you went on the internet, didn't you? Oh, God. You know, I got... <laughs> I'm going to grass him up now. 
No, man, I got drunk and started posting drunk videos in my hotel room in my underwear to 270,000 people. <laughs> Harmless stuff, like, but you know, you wake up the next morning and it's like, that many people didn't need to see your jocks, man. I didn't even know. I was just going, here's my hotel room, guys. And it's, there's a fucking mirror, man. Not even good underpants either, like. Primark underpants. And then you imagine it. It made me look like I had a very shabby cock. <laughs> and then you imagine a pill for something, did you? Oh, Jesus, I went looking. <laughs> this cunt. No, I went looking for fucking hash at four in the morning in Birmingham. But again, I asked 270,000 people. So every single person woke up their local drug dealer. And then... <laughs> I woke up the next morning. I wasn't involved. I like he wasn't there. involved in that. That's this all. Was on my own. <laughs> but like, I got a lot of, I had a lot of phone numbers and all this in the morning, just going to, do you want the hash or not? And I'm like, no, no, I don't know. It's it's 10 a.m. now. I'm I'm trying to see if they let me into the fucking breakfast buffet. <laughs> but that was, we 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 literally uh, we got off stage, kept talking, and I think what happened was because me and you were talking so much and having so much crack, the organisers were like. Don't get involved. <laughs> don't get, we, we were talking about whether Churchill was good or bad. I sort of like, don't get involved, leave him alone. And they just kept putting pints in front of us. And, and I don't think we knew whether when our pint ended and finished. I felt like I just drank one pint, but it turned out it was 12. <laughs> um, what I want to ask you about is, is we were speaking backstage about surnames, and you said that the Normans introduced hereditary surnames. Yeah. So, so if you, the name Fitz, it's French. So we Fee, think, son. Yeah. So you think of Fitzgerald, Fitzpatrick, you think they're really Irish names. They're descended from Normans. Yeah. Uh, so you've got Lord Montgomery, Field Marshal Lord Montgomery. There's a village in Normandy called Montgomery. So the Normans came, it was, and that's where us English need to understand about loss. The English Thanes, the, what we might call the nobility of the Anglo-Saxons, were destroyed. Those that fought at Hastings died or had their lands confiscated. Some of them went off to Constantinople and became Varangian guards mm -hmm. for the uh, Byzantine emperor. Then there were rebellions, our Earl here, Leofric, hence the Leofric Hotel. And he rose up with his brother Morcar, the Earl of Northumbria, they lost. Mm -hmm. And so by the time of the Doomsday Book... And the, the, the Doomsday Book was the... So the Normans, the French come over, yeah. and they're like, we've colonised. Mm. How do we write down everything? How many pigs? How many people? Right. How many this? And that, that for me as well is... That's your modern colonisation. Very much We're going to so. come in here, and this land here is about extraction of wealth. So how... And it's a very... Like, we're talking about the, the ruling class today, the, the real posh, 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 they go right back to William the Conqueror. So, so the, the William, when they came, there were so many rebellions. We were recalcitrants around here. So he set up a big... He put one of his top blokes, Ansculf, in charge of much of North Warwickshire and the Black Country... Well, he's down the Black Country, South Staffordshire. And he built a big castle at Dudley. Well, first of all, it would have been a mott and bailey, so mm -hmm. a mound with... Uh, a keep, a wooden keep, surrounded by a fence and a ditch. But then 
a better castle mm -hmm. we built. He went up north, he harried the north. It, it was a, a terrible time. They massacred people left, right and centre. They destroyed the crops. He was showing, asserting himself. And we need, as English people, I think, to understand that we were like, we lost. Mm -hmm. uh, King Harold had done an amazing warrior. He knew that Harold Ardrada was coming over from Scandinavia with a huge fleet. And he knew William was coming over as well. And he heard that Harold came and he said to Leofric and Morcar, don't take him on, because you'll lose. And they lost. But he got up there and at a great battle, they destroyed the Vikings. But as they were leaving, the word came from the south that William had landed. Now, what William did was very clever, but horrible. He pillaged, raped, and murdered in Harold's own earldom. Now, the, in those days, if you were a lord, your duty was to protect, to protect your own. Mm -hmm. he, he had to get back. And he told Leofric and Morcar, follow me, bring your men, and I will meet him. And it was, it, it's really interesting reading the accounts, not in Anglo-Saxon, because I can't read Anglo-Saxon, but the, the translated accounts. The night before the Battle of Hastings, or Sanlac, as the Anglo-Saxons called it, the Anglo-Saxons got Kaloid. For those that don't know, that means they got lagging. And they were singing and drinking, and the Normans were all, well... And they, he nearly won, Harold nearly won, uh, when what they call the third, which was the ordinary blokes that were asked, the peasantry, to fight. They did a, a decoy, mm -hmm. a dummy, and pretended to flee, and they drew him down. And he then sent his top, five or six of his top men on horseback to kill Harold. Mm -hmm. His brothers and most of his bodyguards, his house carls, were dead by then. And the arrow didn't actually kill him. But can you imagine you've got an arrow in your eye and then there's five men on horseback coming at mm -hmm. you. And his, his common-law wife, as we would say nowadays, was Edith Swanneck, who was supposed to be one of the most beautiful women in England. And the next day after the battle, he, Edith Swanneck and Harold's mother were allowed onto the battlefield by William and they found him. And when they started to take off his armour, he'd been hacked to pieces. And William wouldn't allow him to be buried in a, a grave where it could become a symbol. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand that over the next 20 years, the English thanes lost everything. And by 1086, there were only two Anglo-Saxon thanes that still had land. One was in the north of England, and the other was a man called Turchill, and his son was called Ulfwyn. And Turchill eventually took an Ang uh, a hereditary surname. He was, he was the Lord of Warwick for a time, but the Normans took that from him. But he kept a lot of manors in the North Warwickshire area, in the Forest of Arden. And so, like the Normans had brought in hereditary surnames, Harold would have been Harold Godwinson, the son of Godwin. Harold's sons would not have been Godwinson, they would have been son of Harold, Haroldson. But the Normans brought in the hereditary surname, so Turchill decided he would take a surname. And he called himself Turchill de Arden, Turchill of Arden. He is a direct ancestor of who? Shakespeare's mother, Mary Arden. So Shakespeare had in his blood Anglo-Saxon, mm -hmm. going right back. 
And I've, I feel that if we could understand more as English people that we lost, that we lost land and our language disappeared and it became Middle English with lots of Norman French and other words. The first English king to start to use English, but only in a few commands, was Henry V. And that's, that's a couple of hundred years afterwards, isn't it's it? It's 300 years after. Yeah. Well, 275. That's mad, yeah. Like, yeah. So French, it took a long time. French, and, that's, and, and is that like what I'm saying, why we have it on the plate today? Yeah. And, and, and because as well as that, they brought in the laws about property, because they mm -hmm. own the land, about killing deer, mm -hmm. that you could, you'd be killed for killing a deer, mm -hmm. for, for trespassing, things that poorer people had to do in the countryside, mm -hmm. even for rabbits. And you could get done for that. You could be, you could, you could be transported as a baby. I've just, I've just been doing some research on a, a, a bloke of Irish descent. His dad was a schoolmaster, but abandoned his mum to live in poverty in Birmingham. It was called Jeremiah Corcoran, and he, he killed a police officer in 1875 in Navigation Street. For the laugh, or was it like Feeney and stuff? No, it was, it, was, it was with a gang of English lads okay, yeah. attacking. And from the age of nine, that poor lad had been sent down. He stole a bit of flannel linen. He was sent to an adult prison in 1865. He was sent to an adult prison for 21 days with hard labour. Can you imagine what a terrifying... I'm not excusing what he did later, mm -hmm. but what a terrifying experience for a nine-year-old kid to be in a prison with men, many of whom were violent, having to break stones, pick oakum, old rope... You're and, talking about trauma. Trauma. And trauma responses. And then do you know what happens to him? As he's, after he's done his 21 days, he has to do five years in a reformatory, which was brutal with beatings. Now, that bloke, that lad, his mum was... Even in the newspapers at the time, they said she was a, a good woman, she'd done her best, she'd been abandoned by her husband. But that lad, unfortunately, was born, raised into a life of crime, not by his mother, but by the environment yeah. and by the system that brutalised him. And why don't we learn those lessons? We're still doing it, isn't we? Mm -hmm. We're still doing that, it. Like, I, mean, I know you're talking about something from the late 1800s, but it's, yeah. you find that story today. Yeah. Like. yeah. Um, just something to go back to what you, when we were speaking about the, so the Normans and William the Conqueror being a, a, a very specific type of prick. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. But a very specific type of prick. And in Ireland, um, we're not too fond of royalty, as you can guess. But in Ireland, what we, what we say about royalty is, especially over here, we go, oh, you're royal, is it? What does that mean? Well, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was profoundly violent, and because of that, I started to do a funny dance and wear this hat across several generations, and now that's why that's mine. <laughs> and that's royalty, but it is! And, and one of my... One of my favourite things to do, and I just find, I love doing it, I, I just pick a fucking random member of the royal family, right? Random. And I, I, like, all their parents have blue ticks on Wikipedia. So if someone's royal, you can click on parent in, on Wikipedia, like, and you can go click, 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 click. And I like to click and click and click to see how far I can go. <laughs> and after about a half an hour of any English royal, I end up with, like, so, some fucking... <laughs> 
I end up with some uh, some Viking called Olaf Olaf the Tongue Eater. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because even the even the English royals, the Normans were effectively Vikings that had left their land and yeah. did some bad shit in France. You know what I mean? And then well, became Normans. Rollo was Rollo. Rollo. Mad bastard. It went off. Mm. Now, it's interesting what you said about the Normans in Ireland earlier on. Well, the, the, the Normans in Ireland actually became quite, quite kind. No, they became Irish. They became more Irish than yeah, the Irish. They, but they started to dress like us. They started to have our mar- intermarriage, our customs, our music. Yeah, no, do you know why they became more Irish than the Irish? Because we're great fucking crack. No. They married Irish women. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's to be my Irish wife, Kay, over there somewhere. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, the initial colonisation of Ireland, like, it was brutal at the start. It was. But it, it, it was. It's... I'll, I'll give you another example of the Norman connection with us over here. Go on. Go to Galway. Mm-hmm. All right. There's lots of shops spelt Birmingham with an E. Wow. There are Birminghams. In fact, my wife's cousin is oh, married the to name. A, the I name. I know loads of Birminghams. Roger, you, yeah. Okay, yeah. They're from Birmingham. They were Normans. Right, okay. So They also gave us hedgehogs. Yeah, yeah. The Normans used to eat hedgehogs. Take the prickles out first, though. What? Take the prickles out first. Oh, yeah, take them. I don't know why they used to. They used to love eating hedgehogs. And uh, What's interesting about hedgehogs is, because I've spoken to biodiversity experts about it, it's, it's an example of an invasive species that just went, I'm pretty cool here. <laughs> but it's interesting because it was like the initial Normans that came over. Yeah. The, when hedgehogs came to Ireland, they didn't fuck anything up. They no. just went, I'll have a couple of snails. <laughs> and give me a hedge and a couple of snails and I'm fine. I'm quite happy. But in Ireland, the name hedgehog is Gráinog, which means ugly little thing. And what, but what you see with that is... The Normans come over and we're just like, who the fuck are these cunts taking? <laughs> and then they have their tiny little spiky animals and you see the kind of the vitriol in the name. Yes. Like, I mean, they're not, ah, no, hedgehogs are gorgeous. You got to put in a bit of effort, like, but if you see a little hedgehog, they're cute, like. I'm not going to, like, in all fairness, if I find a hedgehog at nighttime and they're coming up trying to eat some of my cat's food, I'm not going to go, what an ugly little thing. I'm going to go, what a cute little yeah. thing. So you can see when the Irish call them ugly, it's like, yeah. because they belong to them. Like, I was talking to a, a biodiversity expert on, on today's podcast, and she was speaking about a specific type of plant, and I can't remember the name of it, but in North America, the indigenous people call it white men's footsteps. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you see how certain plants and certain animals and what it means to colonization and who, who's brought it there. It's an interesting point. When we were kids, we all play cowboys, and what I'd say now, we used to say the term cowboys and Indians. Mm-hmm. And we'd come out the pictures, sorry for you youngsters, the cinema, and we'd be our own horse mm-hmm. and our own cowboy or Indian. So you'd be slapping your, your backside, your thigh, with one hand and shooting with your two fingers. And then a couple of films started to change our viewpoint of the way the Native Americans were treated. There was one with Jeff Chandler when he was Cochise, which was a, a powerful film, but the one that really, really made us start to think actually something terrible happened to these people. And I don't know if anybody remembers it, Soldier Blue. Mm-mm. If you've never seen it, have you ever seen it? Uh, I think it was Candice Bergen was in it, and it was about the massacre at Wounded Knee. Oh, yeah. And... The massacre at Wounded Knee that whenever America speaks about terrorist yeah, attacks, they yeah. always forget about the massacre at Wounded Knee. And there was a, 
I think it was Sue, Sue people, but it was nearly all women, children and old men in a hollow. Mm -hmm. And the American troops just massacred them. And then we, I read a book. And that wasn't, that was like, was it like 1900? It wasn't? Uh, 18, 18, 79, 80, mm -hmm. something about then. And then there was a book by a man called D. Brown. And he wrote about uh, Wounded Knee. And about, he, he took that and he took it back. And he brought it forward. And if you look at it today, a Native American people on, I mean, look at the word, reservations. Mm -hmm. It's their land. Uh, have high alcoholic rates, mm -hmm. uh, a high male suicide, people who've, who've got no... Everything has been took from Intergenerational them. drama. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that, try and see that. I don't know if it's still available, Soldier Blue, but it, I remember seeing it. I was only about 16 or 17, and me and our kid and a few mates went, and it, it, we didn't come out, you know, shooting and slapping our thighs. It was... It really, really affected us. Uh, I think, yeah, Dave Brown's book is, if you've never read it, it's called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And it is an expose of what really happened. Um, I deliberately haven't asked you about Peaky Blinders tonight. Because, <laughs> well, I wanted to give you the, like, the thing is, whenever you get asked to speak, it's about Peaky Blinders, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to speak about all, all the other stuff you're interested in. But could you tell us a little bit about the real Peaky Blinders? <laughs> Well, the series is pulsating, it's compelling, charismatic actors, uh, modern soundtrack, which you wouldn't have expected. I've got to be honest here now, Kay's here, my wife, she'll tell you, never watch a historical series with a historian that writes about that period. <laughs> After the first five minutes of episode one, series one, has stormed out, I says, where are you going? I said, are you going to stop moaning? I said, all I've heard for five minutes, we don't speak like that, that never happened, that's not right. <laughs> it's a drama, and it's really to bear in mind that gangsterism, it's a, it's a great drama, but it's glamorised gangsterism. And gangsters are not glamorous. They're vile. Mm -hmm. And the real Peaky Blinders were backstreet thugs who baited the police... What do you mean, baited the police? So, come, light, come, ball come baiting, light, ball, light ball baiting. They like to bait the police, beat them. Three police officers were bricked to death. One was murdered by Jeremiah Corkery. The predecessors of the Peaky Blinders were called sluggers. They battled each other with bricks, stones. Their main weapon, it's a myth about the razor blades in the peak of the cap. I'd heard that growing up, but it's a myth. First of all, Disposable safety razor blades were not patented by King Gillette until 1904. They weren't sold by great numbers until 1907 in England, by which time the Peaky Blinder gangs had gone. Number two, they were poor men. A set of five best disposable safety razor blades of Sheffield Steel cost 37 shillings and sixpence. For those who don't understand old money, that was nearly two nicker. A poor man would be lucky to earn 90 pence. Number three, you've got a flat cap. It's soft. So I'm going to have a bust up with you around. And I'm going to take my cap off, right? What have I done to my body? Mm -hmm. I've opened it up, and I said, somebody to belt me. And then I take it off, and it flops. Mm -hmm. But what I'm going to do is going to take my cap off and go, just wait a minute, mate. I'm just going to fold it up <laughs> so I can slash you. 
so it's not feasible. And number four, most importantly, the original Peaky Blinders did not wear flat caps. And I've proved this with photographs from the West Midlands Police Museum, from the old Birmingham City Police, and also from memoirs of police officers and a few rare memoirs of people from the time. They wore what was called a billycock, which was a bowler hat. And what they did, they, they had a very tight prison cropped hairstyle because they liked to show off to their girlfriends where the baton, the, the, the truncheons of the police had scarred them or the belt buckles. Their main weapon was a belt buckle. So they'd take the belt off. They must have wore braces, else the trousers would have fell out. <laughs> and they'd wrap the belt there. And then they'd grab the belt between the, in the palm of the hand and then they would buckle about eight inches that were left and they would slash. Terrible injuries were caused. And the billycock, they had this very tight hair, but they liked, a lot of them liked to quiff. They had a long quiff at the front. And again, I've got photos of this to prove the reality of the memoirs that I found mm -hmm. and the contemporary statements. So what they would do with the bowler hat, it was a, called a billycock, they would wet the brim, hold it over the fire and make it like a funnel. And when mm -hmm. they put it on, they would wear it jointly to one side of the head to show off the oh, peak, okay. yeah. the quiff. Yeah. Hence the peak blinded the eye. They not only baited the police and battled each other viciously, they bullied the hard-working, decent poor amongst whom they lived. And I think this is really important to get these points across. They were not heroes. They were wife abusers. They were petty thieves, many of them. They'd go in a pub and order a round and wouldn't pay, and if the public had asked for money, they'd smash the pub up. They weren't organised criminals, like the Crays and others. They were backstreet thugs, one of whom was my great-grandfather, Edward Derrick, who was a wife abuser. Uh, when I was researching my dad's street, older people on my dad's street said he used to come home mucky drunk and that my great-grandmother would run with my grandmother, Maisie, into the Brewers, the shared communal wash house, or else next door to Granny Carey, because he wouldn't go into Granny Carey's house because they'd got five sons. But if she didn't get out in time, he would beat her brutally. Mm. He smashed the house up. He was a thief. On one occasion, he had several occasions he assaulted the police, and on one occasion, he was in a fight with a bloke, hit him with a shovel, that never worked. So I don't know why it was there, but there was a meat cleaver and he cleaved the man's head. The man lived and he only got three years. And he came from a, a line of violent men and abusive men. So these, it's really important for me when I'm going to schools, there's always a group of lads in tough areas. That are do you know this weekend, do you know the fascist marches in, in London yeah, this weekend? Yeah. Yeah. All of them had the fucking, the, the flat cap. Yeah. There was a lot of flat caps there, and I knew that th these are fascist, hateful people marching today, Tommy Robinson's people, and they're trying to look like Tommy Shelby. Yeah. And what the fuck is going on there? So there is a danger so there. who's identifying in, with that as a type of Englishness, and why? Yeah. So there is, that, that, to me, is a real danger, and that, so whilst not acknowledging the power of the drama, it is a drama. And mafia-style godfathers, like Tommy Shelby, are not respectful to old people, do not treat women well, and are not kind to children. Would you just they look, look at own. them today, like, I mean, find me the nice ones today, they're all pricks. Well, you, you, you look around, last week, um, a large number, lot, lot of men 
in Belgium and elsewhere, Italy, were arrested for belonging to the Andragata. I, I probably mispronounced that. This is the Calabrian. Oh, they're the lads, the Calabrian, yeah. The, they, the Calabrian Mafia now control, they've come from the mountains, they control the cocaine trade in Europe. Mm -hmm. You've got the Camorra in Naples, mm -hmm. you've got the Mafia, obviously, in Sicily, and they've got tentacles everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, the Albanian Mafia control the importation of cocaine into Britain. Do you know about the connection between the Mafia and, remember all the Somalian pirates that we saw? Yeah. <clears throat> so if you look at that coast there, what is it called between Italy and Africa? Uh, the, the Horn of Africa. Horn of Africa. So a lot of Somalian people there for years and years were, were fishermen, yeah. right? Yeah. But the Mafia for years and years and years in Italy were doing uh, rubbish scams. So the Mafia would take over the rubbish trucks, but then they wouldn't dump it ethically. They'd dump it in the sea. Yeah, killed And all the years fish. and years and years of the Mafia dumping in the sea around Italy killed the fucking fish in the Horn of Africa. And then the people from Somalia were like, there's no more fish. Yeah, what do we do? And then piracy came from that. Yeah. So, and if you look at Naples, there's huge mountains of rotting rubbish mm. outside Naples. So, gangsterism is not something that is to be admired. They are not anti-heroes. So, enjoy the drama. Enjoy Sopranos. Mm -hmm. But Tony Soprano is not to be admired. Have you watched Sopranos? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They do a yeah. good job of showing that he's not to be admired. Yeah. I think they do. What do you yeah. think? I think, I think they overall, do it, but they're also quite compassionate with it because well, they show his trauma and wounds yeah. and what you get a sense with Tony Soprano which I loved is there's actually a good man in here waiting to break out uh, but his circumstances his life what he saw around him no yeah. way and inside him is this nice person and he cannot show that so I, I think the equivalent of the Peaky Blinder backstreet gangs today would be the postcode gangs you know, where kids in London and Birmingham and elsewhere oh, yeah. are killing each other mm -hmm. for coming from the wrong district. But I think then drugs has added to that because they're not only backstreet gangs fighting each other for territory and toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. but they're also fighting each other for control of earning something from selling drugs. And then I think that's the, the trauma of poverty. Yeah. So, and I think we've got to be aware here that it would be a, a calumny to say that because somebody's poor, they're going to be criminal. The vast majority of poor people are hardworking, respectable people, striving every day to get out of a poverty imposed by an unfair system. But there is no doubt there is a connection with poverty and some of the crimes mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Um, I had a wonderful woman, Linda Owen, who is from a, a working class background in Dublin, now she's a senator in Ireland. And she's someone, she speaks out quite frequently, but when Lynn speaks out, yeah. it is seen as aggressive. And it's like, no, 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 this is where I'm from and this is how yeah. we speak out. But she speaks quite well about, about that, about the poverty and how the pressures of us. But, but what you've said there again is another problem with, with gender bias, isn't it? If a man speaks strongly, course, he's speaking yeah. strongly. A woman speaks strongly, always being aggressive. You know, a woman's talk is gossip, isn't it? But men, men discuss. Men fucking gossip, man. Did you ever speak to a <laughs> fucking taxi driver, man? Oh my God, taxi drivers. There's a great book by a historian called Melanie Tebbett who, who's reclaimed the word gossip. And she, she's written a book on women's gossip saying it's women's talk. 
was vital for poor in poorer areas because a, a woman might say, there's a shop down the road, they've got a sale on for this, that, the other, or your old man's looking for work, my chap's had to, you know what I mean? That kind of, or so-and-so's having a babby, let's go and help her. So there's this, it was a wonderful book by Melanie. Or whisper networks to keep yeah. our women safe. Like, so, that's... I mean, talk, talking, and this is again another problem, talking of, of gangs in, in, in Finglas, where my wife comes from, there's... Um, a, a gang leader who's, who's very powerful, and in the newspaper he's called Mr. Flashy. Yeah. Mr. Flashy. Oh, that's the Irish fucking newspapers, man. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. The Irish newspapers give the gangsters names yeah, yeah. and follow them around like they're fucking Diana Ross. Yeah. Like, it's bizarre. It's a very unique Irish problem. The man. monk. The monk. How could he be a flipping monk when he's a... I think it's because he was quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I'm going to end the chat there um, because there were audience questions after that but I don't want the podcast to go on for too long that was a tremendous tremendously enjoyable night that I had there in Coventry with Professor Carl Chain like I said go out and buy his books hopefully he's going to be doing his own podcast at some point so I'll probably have him back on for that I hope you enjoyed that conversation I'm going to be back next week, most likely with a hot take, when I'm back in Ireland, back in my studio. But right now, I'm going to fuck off into Oslo, experience the cold, and get ready for my gig later on tonight. And also, tomorrow, I'm hoping to use a flotation tank. I've never been in a flotation tank before, like sensory deprivation. So I'm going to do that tomorrow because... The, the company that brought me over to do these gigs in Oslo is actually a flotation company. They, the name of the business is Floating Oslo. If you're ever around Oslo and you want to use a flotation tank, get onto Floating Oslo. And Carl there will sort you out. He was a sound man from Glasgow. Alright, dog bless. I'll catch you next week. In the meantime, rub a swan and genuflect to a worm. Kiss a cat. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>